The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing in healthcare and healthcare stocks. My guest is Barron's Healthcare Reporter, Josh Nathan Cases, and we've got lots of news to discuss today. Down to the last minute, we've been looking at what's been happening in the healthcare sector. Welcome, Josh. How are you? Doing all right. Good to talk to you. How are you? Glad to have you back on Barron's Live. Glad to be so, here. I want to tell you, Josh, it gives me no pleasure to report that so many people I know now have COVID, mostly in the New York area. I've read that we shouldn't refer to a spike in COVID cases, although it seems like one, but clearly we're not done with this virus. So what are the latest COVID stats that you've been monitoring? I will say that, you know, the, the nationwide um, COVID uh, case count uh, is is climbing as of the past couple of days. I believe yesterday when I looked at the New York Times site that, you know, pulls together all the data, it was up 8%. The average number of new daily cases was up 8% over the last two weeks. As of today, it's up 22% over the last two weeks. Now, it is very important to say that hospitalizations nationwide are down 13% um, over the last two weeks. And and everywhere, they're at a rather low or re- very low level relative to the rest of the pandemic. However, you know, if you look in places where BA2 has been around for a while. BA2 um, being the Omicron variant. Yeah, that sort of new subvariant of Omicron that's, that, that seems to be there, there that is fueling the spike. Um, or this increase in cases, hospitalizations are up. And then that's mostly in New England. So if you look, these these numbers are as of yesterday. But if you look, for example, in Rhode Island, where cases are up more than 100% over the past two weeks, hospitalizations are up 13%. And Delaware, the state with the highest number of hospitalizations per capita right now, um, they're, they're up 30% over the last two weeks. Um, now, w- w- what's happened is that uh, BA2 has pushed out the original Omicron strain, which we now refer to as BA1. The CDC estimates that BA2 accounted for 86% of cases last week in the US. And, you know, people have been tracking this will know that that number has climbed very quickly. Uh, Is that because of so much? Me. Oh, bless you. <laughs> bad sign there. I, I hope it's not a bad sign. Is that because it's so much more transmissible than BA1 and then Delta? Yeah, yeah, that's what's that I mean, it seems seems to be that BA2 is more transmissible or, you know, has, has advantages in terms of transmissibility over BA1. um, And both of them are more transmissible than Delta. You know, a very, very, very large proportion of this country was infected with um, Omicron with, with BA1 uh, during the peak or the, the wave that peaked a month or two or two months ago at this point. Um, But, you know, that still is probably just about half the country. And there are plenty of other people left who did not get, infected with that particular strain. Um, and so it seems to be that those people are now um, getting BA2. Um, but, uh, you know, as at least the, the, the rhetoric from public health officials over the past couple of weeks has been confidence that this wave will not lead to the drive, in, the, the rise in hospitalizations or deaths that we saw with the Omicron wave, 
due in part to, um, you know, the, the, the immunity built up by the Omicron wave not so long ago, um, uh, as well as other factors. But we don't we don't really know yet. And people are, I think, crossing their fingers. People describe it as kind of a mild cold, mild to moderate. Yeah, yeah I don't, I, don't, I, don't I, I wouldn't speak to that directly, but I would say that, uh, you know, I think people's experiences differ, but certainly, um, especially in vaccinated and, and boosted people, um, you know, this Omicron has not led to the same levels of serious illness as earlier waves. You know, the other important thing to say here is that we are now in the antiviral era. It's not... Uh, if Paxlovid, the, the Pfizer antiviral, is increasingly available, um, and it is, you know, the, the studies that, that Pfizer has run suggest that it's very, very effective at keeping people out of the hospital. Um, so that's an important tool that is available now. I think, you know, there have been mixed reports about how easy it is to get, but... Uh, a little you know, hard around here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if you, if you look at the um, the website of the federal government agency that distributes it to the states, I think they're sending... You know, I should have looked before before saying this, but I think it's about like 175,000 courses of the of, of the anti- antiviral um, per week. Um, so that that sounds like a lot to me, but uh, you know, I, I don't I don't really know what the experience has been on the ground in terms of getting it um, in the past couple of weeks. I think you have to call around a lot to find it. But I think it probably depends on the state and the city you're, that you're in. Sure. Bottom line is, we are not getting rid of COVID anytime soon. It may morph our our reaction to it will morph, but we're going to be dealing with this for a while. That's what uh, that's, it seems like that's to fair me. to say. Yeah. So let's move on and talk about some healthcare companies. Pfizer, which has really been a star of the COVID era in the vaccine and the antiviral departments, has a new chief financial officer. He's got a background in mergers and acquisitions. Is it too soon to connect the dots here? Well, it's not just that he has a background in mergers and acquisitions. This guy, his name is David Denton. He was most recently CFO of Lowe's, the hardware store chain. But before that, he was CFO of CVS. And and he was the CFO um, as they negotiated the Aetna acquisition. And that was, uh, what was it, late 2017, right? Um, it that was, was an enormous deal in healthcare. It's probably, you know, one of, if not the biggest healthcare deals in, you know, recent history. And and it, and it turned or it con- it completed the transformation of CVS from a retail chain to, you know, a pretty enormous vertically integrated health system. You know, they have a they have retail pharmacies, they have uh, PBM, which is called a pharmacy be- benefit manager, which is a, a you know, a, a middleman in the insurance system. And they have their own very large insur- insurance company. Um and he, he negotiated that deal. Uh, he was also involved in the incorporation uh, or sort of the, the process of incorporating their PBM, uh, which they had bought in a separate deal a few years earlier. Um, so, you know, he has a background in some of the biggest healthcare deals of the last uh, number of decades. And, and you know, that that is interesting because Pfizer has a lot of money right now. <laughs> you know, the, the, the problem that Pfizer has uh, that we've talked about many times for years is that they have this uh, a number of losses of exclusivity, a number of drugs going off patent towards the end of the decade. Um, and I think, you know, that, that the concern over that patent cliff has been one of the factors that's kept Pfizer's um, uh, valuation relatively low compared to some of its peers, despite, you know, the pandemic era successes that it's seen. And, you know, what Pfizer would say is the evidence that it's shown during the pandemic of its scientific prowess. 
but now they have a lot of money and and the the ceo who spoke to me um right before this um uh the, the, this hiring or this appointment was announced has talked a lot about how he is very much interested in MA as a way of you know building out the pipeline um they, they, because they have a lot of COVID money right now or COVID vaccine therapeutic money uh, right now, they, they basically say, Borla, has, the CEO, has said he's agnostic to the size of the deal so that, that, that he makes. And they haven't announced so many huge deals yet. There was a big one at the end of last, last year. There was a smallish one a couple of weeks ago. Um, there was an SVB Learing uh, note in December that estimated that they would have a theoretical M&A capacity of 110 billion dollars by the end of wow. this year, and, you know that includes uh, you know the kind of financing they could get. But it's it's you know it just shows that if they see things that they want, they can they have the money to get them. And so you know the the hiring of a CFO who who's you know the sort of big big thing in his career that that is notable is the involvement in one of these mega mega deals. Um, you know, just I think suggests that uh, to 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 investors that Pfizer is, is on the hunt. Um, and this feeds into something we can talk about a little bit later, you know, that I think there was a big expectation that we and others wrote about at the end of last year, that there would be a lot of pharmaceutical M&A this year. Um, up until this week, it, it hadn't happened. Uh, there were a, a number of deals in the past couple of weeks that we can talk about. Um, but people have been looking for this. Pfizer's not the only big pharma company that has a lot of money right now, uh, to spend. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of an interesting moment. Uh, you know, the, the other piece of this is that biotech stocks, especially small and mid-cap biotech stocks, are, the valuations are really depressed, as we've spoken about. They're, they're, they're very low. The, the stocks have lost a tremendous amount of value in the last 12 months. So, you know, there, there's, there's a potential moment here, but anybody's guess what's, what's actually going to happen or, or when, we'll begin, when or if we'll begin to see these deals. So I'm going to connect the dots in pencil. Yeah. Why, don't we, why don't we leave it at that? Tell sure. tell me how Pfizer stock has reacted. Well, you know, I, I don't know if there was much reaction to the appointment of this, the CFO, but uh, it's it's down nine point two percent this year. Um, Pfizer has a dividend of three percent, which is uh, you know we're we're thinking about pretty decent. You get paid while you wait for the action. And I would say you've talked to the CEO of Pfizer and the chief medical officer. I've talked to the chief medical officer. They have a formidable executive team. Yeah. And they've been hiring. Uh, there've been a, a bunch of uh, new additions to the team over the last six months. So stock is down 9% this year. Don't count them out. I want to move on for a moment, Josh, and talk about Biogen's Alzheimer's treatment at a helm. It can't seem to stay out of the news. The latest issue involves a regulatory fight with real-world implications for patients. The CMS, or Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has effectively contradicted the FDA's views on Adahelm. The FDA approved the drug last June. Tell us what the fight is about. What are the implications for Biogen, for other Alzheimer's drug makers, and for patients? Yeah, so you know, pe people may remember that this is the drug that was approved last year for Alzheimer's. There's a lot of controversy, a lot of questions about how well it works. Um, the, the 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 price initially was um, surprisingly high, and it had dramatic implications for Medicare because uh, the vast majority of Alzheimer's patients, due to their the age at which the illness generally affects people, um, were w w are you know covered by Medicare and. In fact, Medicare raised its rate uh, last year in anticipation of needing to pay for this. Instead, 
um, the agency that you mentioned, CMS, which which operates the program, it decided to run a very unusual process that they don't run for approved drugs very often called a national coverage determination that would have set a nationwide policy or that did set a nationwide policy for how Medicare will cover Agilm. And they put out a draft decision in January that we spoke about at the time, I believe, that said that they will basically not cover Agilm except for in the context of randomized controlled studies, which, you know, there were, you know, which is very, very narrow and, and suggests that, um, you know, there would not be very much patient access to the drug. Biogen pushed back very hard on this. So did some Alzheimer's advocacy groups, which have been very supportive of the notion of giving access to this drug, despite both its safety risks, its proven safety risks, risks, and the, you know, the questions about its efficacy. And that's a big um, thing now in healthcare is patient advocacy groups. Uh, certainly, yes. And it's been, you know, depending on the disease, they, they can be very powerful and influential, do a lot of lobbying. Um, and, you know, they, they, they put an important voice in there because they do represent notionally and, and, and you know, I think clearly the interests of patients, um, which right. are not always the same as the interests of the drug companies, obviously, or the interests necessarily of, of scientists. And, and, you know, and I think, you know, patient advocacy has an important history and, and shouldn't be discounted at all. Um, and, you know, we can talk about that at a different time. But what's happened here is that the patient advocacy group, you know, lined up with Biogen to try to push back the CMS decision. What happened last week, it was, it was supposed to happen on Monday. They jumped the gun, which uh, was a little bit challenging for uh, my mundane coverage um, scheduling issues. But anyway, they, they, they did not change. They effectively did not change their decision, particularly with how, um, how it reflects on Agihelm. And they will continue to only, or they will only cover Agihelm um, in the context of a randomized controlled trial. And that's sort of, you know, commercial curtains for Agihelm unless something very unexpected happens. Now, the, the decision didn't only apply to Agihelm. It applied to this entire class of anti-amyloid antibodies for Alzheimer's. Algehelm is the only approved one, but there are a number in the pipeline from a number of big companies, including um, Biogen and its partner, ISI, have another one called Lacanamab. Uh, Lilly has one called Nanamab. And Roche has one called Gantrinimab. Um, and all of them are in various st various stages of development and at various stages of, of submission for FDA approval. And what the CMS said in its decision is that they will offer slightly more flexible coverage if the drugs get approved based on evidence of clinical benefit rather than evidence that it can simply clear amyloid plaque. So let, let's just break that down a little bit. Um, as people may remember, when Agihelm was approved, it was approved not on evidence of clinical benefit, but on evidence which is clear that it can clear the, the amyloid plaques in the brain that are thought by some to be correlated or to create to cause Alzheimer's disease. That, that scientific theory that it is these plaques that causes Alzheimer's in some way is um, you know, controversial and certainly not accepted by the entire scientific community. But for the purposes of this drug, the FDA accepted it. Um, and and they, they gave uh, Agihelm what's known as accelerated approval based you know, on these, these surrogate endpoints, not on actual evidence of clinical benefit. And basically what CMS has said is that if the, um, if the uh, future drugs in this category get full approval based on clinical benefit, then they will be covered... Um, 
basically, basically, uh, you, you can do different kinds of trials that would be covered, not just randomized controlled trials where there would be a placebo group, but basically retro, you know, prospective trials where you could, um, just enroll, get the drug. And then, you know, they would like collect evidence on your treatment, um, or on your, on your course of, uh, on the, on the impact the treatment has on you, but you wouldn't be at risk of getting the placebo instead of the drug. So that's potentially like a much larger population that would be able to access these drugs. However, Lily and Isai are both moving forward with their anti-amyloid antibodies um, under the accelerated approval pathway, not under the full approval pathway. So it's a very interesting regulatory question here. What's going to happen? Are these drug makers going to blink and, and try to you know, go for full approval? Both of them have ongoing studies that will read out in the next year or so that it would be a test of whether the drug um, that would would actually be able to, you know, that are, that are designed to measure clinical benefit. Um, so it's 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 a complicated and tricky situation. Uh, you know, investors were not surprised at the outcome here. Biogen shares didn't respond much. Neither did Lilly shares. Biogen shares are still down about 11% this year and 21% over the last 12 months. Um, and, you know, there's some big questions for Biogen now. They had excuse me, they had previously said that um, if the CMS didn't change its decision, they would take make further cuts. They've already taken some cuts, uh, some budget cuts uh, they announced at the end of last year. They've said they would do more. They haven't specifically said they are going to do that yet. But, um, you know, there, there's certainly some questions about Biogen and how it's going to move forward from this. Um, Understandable. And yeah. where where are patient advocates in all of this? I mean, look, I think they're disappointed that they didn't get yeah. the drug. Um, look, you, you can certainly empathize. It's a horrible disease, sort of hopeless. Um, and uh, anything and that offers some hope, you can it. see why people would, um, would people would, you know, be interested in, in pursuing it because you could, you, you can certainly see how people would, would, would rationalize that. But um, yeah, so, so people are, I guess the big question now is uh, what's going to happen with, the phase three lecanemab trial, uh, which is going to read out in the fall and will it provide evidence of clinical benefit? If it does, that would have implications, significant implications for the whole class because it was, because it would sort of prove out the, the whole theory on which these drugs are based. Well, I'm glad you explained this all to us. You obviously understand it very well, and it's going to be a big issue and a continuing issue. So thank you for that, Josh. I want to go back to the topic of mergers and acquisitions. I'll remind listeners that we will take questions at the end of the call. If they have any, type them in. As you note, there has suddenly been a flurry of merger and acquisition activity. Who is buying whom? Is this going to continue? What's the outlook? Tell us what's happening and what's the outlook. So there have been a couple of acquisitions over the past week that are worth remembering, uh, uh, mentioning rather. Last week, Pfizer bought a private company called Reviral uh, for about $500 million. Uh, that includes both upfront payments and then eventual milestone payments. Um, the Reviral has a, an antiviral for a virus called RSV. Pfizer and a bunch of other companies are working on RSV vaccines. Um, you know, it sort of resembles the same wraparound approach that Pfizer took with COVID, they have a, they hope to have an RSV vaccine. And if, you know, if this company the antiviral works, they would also have an RSV antiviral. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a condition that mostly affects young and old people, but it's a substantial unmet need. So that would be, uh, you know, pretty, pretty big for them. The, the other deal worth mentioning is, I guess, yesterday or two days ago, 
GlaxoSmithKline announced a $1.9 billion deal for a company called Sierra Oncology. That, that company's lead drug, it actually bought from Gilead for just $3 million up front about four years ago. Um, so that's a pretty big, pretty big win. That's a big Sierra, win. Sierra Oncology. Uh, and, 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 you know, Glaxo obviously is um, going through a big transition. They're going to spin off their consumer health division later this year. And they are looking to pump up their oncology pipeline in advance of that. And the other one is uh, a company called Halazyme Therapeutics, bought a company called Antares Pharma um, for $960 million. So, you know, this is in a year that hasn't seen a huge amount of pharmaceutical or biotech M&A. This feels like a, a lot. Um, and as you think it's going to continue? Well, I think... You're, ne you're never going to win um, predicting M&A trends. So I, 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 I don't know. But, but it, you know, we had expected, I mean, I get, we made a mistake of <laughs> saying late last year that, you know, early 2020 would be a time of a lot of pharmaceutical M&A. Uh, and that didn't happen. But maybe, maybe it's opening up now. I, you know, one thing that potentially is worth mentioning, Pfizer had announced a very large deal late last year um, for Arena Therapeutics, I think it was called. And that deal was finally cleared by the FTC just a few weeks ago, um, right before the reviral deal, deal was announced. You know, there's no knowing how, uh, whether Pfizer was actually concerned about the FTC rejecting that deal. Uh, Borla told me they were not, he, Pfizer was not concerned. But, you know, a lot of companies have had questions about how the FTC is going to think about pharmaceutical mergers. And there had been some uh, reason to believe that they would look um down on you know they, they would not be open to or they, they would be taking a close look at, at pharmaceutical mergers so yeah. i wonder if if that you know that getting through the ftc opens some people up but yeah I really, I really don't know we should also note that the first quarter has been a pretty bad one for stocks in general there's been a cloud hanging over the market in terms of the fed lifting interest rates and just a lot of uncertainty and sometimes companies like to wait out the uncertainty before they make big moves certainly a lot going on a lot going on in the world. A lot going on in the world is an understatement. You are yeah. right. So circling back to COVID, the FDA's vaccine advisors met recently. And as we all know, there's been a tremendous amount of confusion about COVID vaccines and boosters. Should people get the fourth booster? Should they wait for the development of an Omicron-specific shot? Will there even be one? And will it matter by the time it gets here? You get the drift of what the issues are. What was on the FDA's agenda? And what, if anything, was resolved? So interestingly, um, the fourth dose authorization happened the week before this meeting happened. Um, the FDA's advisors were not consulted. And at the beginning of the meeting, they asked why they weren't consulted on the fourth dose, dose authorization. I'd ask, yes. And, 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 you know, Peter Marks, who's sort of the, among other things, in charge of vaccines at the FDA now, basically said he didn't see that as a, as a big thing. And, and the big decision was going to have to do with the updated Omicron vaccine. Uh, sorry, the updated vaccines that would be, um, uh, you know, specifically target a new variant, um, because as we may recall, the current vaccines we take are all designed to target the original Wuhan strain, which is not circulating anymore um, in any serious way. Uh, and so that's what the meeting was about. It was about this problem of when and how to update the the vaccines. And, and you know, I think if you went into that thinking it was confusing and a hard question, you left thinking it was like the hardest question ever and the most confusing question ever. The number of factors to think about are enormous. The, the problems are enormous. Um, 
it's it's just a, it's, it's it's sort of confounding. I mean, you know, the, the companies have been developing Omicron specific vaccines based on BA one, the original Omicron variant. By the fall, when there's conversation about a new round of boosting, you know, will BA one be present at all? Will BA two be present at all? Like it, the, the speed of the evolution of this virus is remarkable. And at least in some sense, it, it, it may be too fast for mRNA vaccines, not immediately, but maybe in the long term. I mean, if they were, the, the, the government has not said, the FDA has not said what strain they think the, um, uh, the, the fall vaccines, the fall boosters should be targeting. If they decide something in May, it doesn't give the companies a tremendous amount of time to test these vaccines. One problem is that you know, when we test the flu, when we when we develop a new flu vaccine, they have what's known as a correlative protection, essentially a targeted and um, you know immune response that they can measure in people who have received um, you know a, a specific flu vaccine, and based on the immune response they see, they can make a judgment as to whether or not they think it will protect against the circulating flu strain. Now that doesn't work that well. The flu vaccines are often very bad. But that's the way it's done. With COVID, there really isn't a correlate, an established correlate of protection. Companies talk about antibody responses, um, but it, there, there's no level of antibody response that the you know scientists generally accept um, confers enough protection, and it doesn't take into account other immune responses, um, you know, the other other types of responses the immune system can mount. So that's just one part of the problem. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's sort of enormously complex. And I think that was the takeaway. The, the advisors did not take any decisions but, uh, or vote on anything, but it, it is clear that they will be meeting a lot in the coming weeks to make some decisions about this fall booster campaign, which the FDA said that it expects will be necessary. And if the pros can't figure it out, you can imagine how we feel, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I mean, these are questions that would not be our decision about, you know, how to design the... No, but even whether to get a fourth booster if you qualify and so forth. Yeah, I think that fourth booster question is a confounding one. Yeah, it's a big issue. Well, I'm so glad that you're sharing all of this with us because I think anybody listening to this call is getting a great me- medical education today. Uh, I, no, I'm not, not, I'm not. I know you're not Dr. Josh, but, <laughs> but you're a very good reporter. So let's go to some questions. Bruce asks, what is your view on the future of mRNA therapies? And do you think Moderna is the leading company in this space? Any thoughts there? Uh, that's a, it's, a good, it's a good and important question. I guess he's asking about mRNA therapies as, as opposed to mRNA vaccines. Um, you know, uh, there are various companies, including CureVac, BioNTech, and Moderna, are working on, you know, oncology indications for mRNA. Um, and, you know, there have been a number of efforts to develop um, mRNA therapeutics for rare diseases. Um, there was some interesting early data last week or early this week. No, last weekend, rather from BioNTech on one of their um, cancer therapeutics. It's a little early to say just how good it is, but it seemed, at least the company said it seemed promising. So, um, you know, I'm not sure there's a great answer here, but everyone's working, a number of companies are working on it. There's there's a lot of hope there, but I'm not sure it's, it hasn't been, you know, we don't don't have the proof that it works in the same way that we do with mRNA vaccines. For sure. 
So Ruslan asks about your thoughts on Pfizer and Biogen. Do you like the companies and why? Um, any thoughts there? You know, I think we, we had a piece not so long ago saying that we liked uh, Pfizer. I forget exactly how long ago, but I think we've written quite positively, or I've written quite positively about, about Pfizer in the, in the recent past. Um, you know, Biogen has a lot of challenges, and um, I think a lot depends on the lecanemab trial uh, coming out later this year and the company sort of figuring out what happens next and what it's going to do, um, you know, with, without Agile. Are there other companies you've written about positively? We might as well share that, say, in the past six months or so. Uh, uh, we, we did do a positive Moderna story uh, yes. not so long ago. It's hard for me to just think, uh, pull stuff out of my head on one foot here. but um, Right. But you definitely have written positively on Moderna and Pfizer. I have. I have. So, okay. Um, other questions. Is the life sciences subsector overvalued, undervalued? How do you evaluate the realistic risk for a pharma company in terms of regulatory issues and issues of regulatory reform? Kind of two oh, questions. Those are so two hard. questions. They're both very hard. I'm, I'm not sure I have an answer on life sciences more broadly. And in terms of the risk to pharmaceutical companies from, you know, uh, I mean, part of it is you need to have some confidence that Congress is going to do anything. And I, I'm not sure that that's what's happening right now in, in Washington. So that that sort of logjam does seem to be um, have a positive side effect for the pharmaceutical companies. But, you know, I'm not sure I have a, a super well thought out uh, position on this. Gridlock. Gridlock is, I think, ruling at the moment. So let's talk for a minute about the broader healthcare sector. Let's take a look at how some of the big ETFs have performed. It's been a pretty crummy year for stock and bond investors both. And my impression is it has not been a good year for healthcare investors either. Give us an update. You know, what's what's funny is sort of quietly, it hasn't been such a bad for health, bad year for healthcare investors. There's a, there's a healthcare sector... ETF called the XLV, you know, it's got like, you know, uh, uh, United Healthcare, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, the big healthcare companies. It's down only 1% this year compared to the S&P 500, which is down 2.6%. And in fact, it hit an all-time high last week. Um, so it, it's not doing bad. You know, there are sectors that are doing worse, but the pharmaceutical index, the S&P 500 pharmaceutical index, that's all the big pharmaceutical companies, is up 2.6% this year. Biotech is still down. Biotech's ETF, the XBI, which is one we talk about a lot, the SPD or S&P biotech ETF is down 21%. But outside of biotech, um, especially in some of the large cap pharma stocks, it, it hasn't, uh, sorry, large cap healthcare stocks, it hasn't been such a bad year. I'm glad you pointed out the difference. I think I was focused unduly on the biotech sector. Well, we talk about it a lot because it's interesting, but it is right. uh, not the whole. Segment. Right. It's just a segment of the healthcare market. So this leads almost directly to Jake's question. He's looking for an inflation defensive strategy. Does healthcare work for that? And I have to say, based on your comments, Josh, about some of the bigger healthcare ETFs, the XLV, for instance, they certainly seem to be defensive in a year when other things aren't working. I've certainly seen that commentary. You know, I, I'm not I'm not so good on the macro stuff, but um, that that's certainly an argument that I've seen made um, in the past few weeks. We'll keep an eye on it and we'll leave it at there today. I want to thank you for your insights and I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. All right. Thanks very much. Great. So 
Please come back tomorrow, everyone. Investors Business Daily News Editor Ed Carson and Alyssa Corum, IBD's Multimedia Content Editor, will discuss how investors can filter out the noise by focusing on market signals, industry rankings, chart patterns, and more. Very stock-focused call. Be well, everyone, and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.